Hi there, this is Tracy Malone from NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. <laughs> I am here today talking with um, Dr. Christina Cochiola, and we are going to talk about um, protective parenting. And this is something that I really wasn't quite aware of in the co-parenting world, specifically for narcissistic parents. And not that you're the narcissist, but you are a co-parent with a narcissist if you're listening to my channel. And so what do we do when the kids come home and we have to deprogram them? That's what all my clients call it. It's like, it's like three days and they're not back to themselves. And then they get to be back themselves and then they go back off and they come back and they're terrorists and they're, they're swearing at us and they're throwing the F-bomb at us from your children. What do we do there, right? So this protective parenting that she's going to talk to us about today should have a lot of answers for you and a lot of steps that you could start right now. And I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to learn a lot from her. So let's go meet her and talk about protective parenting and how it might be able to help your co-parenting relationship with your children. My goal here at this channel is to bring you people that can help you, guide you, authors that write books that, hey, that's something my clients need. My audience needs that. So let's go meet Christine and uh, we'll learn about protective parenting. Welcome, Christina. I'm so excited that you're here to join me today. And would you mind telling my audience a little bit about yourself before we get yeah. started? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. I really appreciate it. Um, so I am, I would call myself a protective parent. And I have been doing this work since the age of 19, a domestic violence, uh, sexual assault advocate and child abuse advocate. I've worked in child welfare, and I also have been a teacher um, in social work teaching on domestic abuse for over the last 20 years, but also programming to protect children and had no idea it was going on in my own home. So this is, uh, I consider myself a coercive control um, advocate and really want to educate people about the non-physical forms of domestic abuse. And, and really, that's how most domestic abuse starts off, right? It's, it's about power and control, right? Yeah, and thank you. Um, your work has been amazing. And, you know, people hear, oh, she's an advocate, but you're a doctor and you've been doing this for a long time. And your expertise is, again, really educating the world. So I'm so grateful that you are part of this today. I started my little foot in the door here with the domestic violence world as well. And I learned a lot and um, I'm happy that I'm helping the emotionally abused people at this point because they don't get as much cred from the DV world. <laughs> That's true when you can't see it, right? It's hard to identify it even if even as a victim of it. It's hard to identify. Yeah, exactly. So let, we're going to talk about um, protective parent. You said that in your introduction, but why don't you explain that to my audience? Because many of us might not understand the whole girth of what that means. Sure. So I define a protective parent as someone who, of course, always has their children's best interests in mind, but it's really about becoming educated about what children need in their relationships with those people that they rely on. And that is really about attachment. So I come from a clinical perspective. I'm also a licensed clinical social worker and really come from this um, the idea that all children need to have a healthy attachment 
to at least one care caretaker. Now, are there some children who don't and they end up being okay? Absolutely, this is not a black and white issue. But most children will really thrive in a beautiful way if they have a strong attachment to one person in their life. And that really is about being loved unconditionally. Children need to know deep in their soul that no matter what they do, how they behave, what they say, that they are loved implicitly, unconditionally, and that they can authentically be themselves. And, and this is like, it, it, I, I get goosebumps when I say it because it's like such a simple like idea, but it's really not the simplest to implement, particularly if you are dealing with a child who is role modeling abusive behaviors from an abusive partner. I mean, <laughs> that is like a loose cannon and that is really, really challenging. And, you know, I come to this work because I was in a marriage for 27 years and nine months, met the person when I was 16. So really a very large portion of my life and had two beautiful children and had no idea that this person was indoctrinating my children against me the first time I caught him having an affair. So what I learned, what I did finally like understand what was really going on when I figured it out, actually my, my daughter told me when he first started indoctrinating them. And this is like, she told me nine years later. So I couldn't figure out what was wrong and why we didn't have the strong attachment that I expected us to have. And, um, and so when I did figure it out, I realized I needed to come to this in a very different way if I wanted to repair the harm that he had done for so long. So it's truly about being willing to put our own trauma after horrible circumstances, almost like in a box, and deal with that with our own trauma therapist, for sure. But come to our children entirely different than that trauma victim. Because if we come across as, if we are that trauma victim, we're going to be triggered by them over and over and over again. And they are not going to heal. Mm -hmm. So I, I always say that protective parents, if, if they're able to really take on this role in a way that I teach all the time, if they're able to do it, their children will heal with them. You will heal in synergy. Because I mean, what's the one thing? What's the one thing we all want for our children? Be happy and safe. And, and healthy, right? Like, right? We don't, and you know, some of us are like, you know, I hear moms say all the time, I don't want him to be like the narcissist. I don't want him to be like the abuser. And they end up role modeling some of those behaviors. Well, the strategies that I try to implement actually, I believe, prevent that. And so that's what a protective parent is. That's a long answer. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's helpful because again, my audience is dealing with narcissists and, you know, the co-parenting is the lack of, or, or, you know, almost counter-parenting in every regard, you know, even to the point of, oh, they're potty trained. Oh, not at my house. I don't want to do that stuff. I'm not cleaning up. So let's go, you know, regression on every level that they can. And that's, that's a baby example, but it goes on all the way up to the, the point where they are harming the children and again the 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 survivor not the narcissist in this case would be sort of like again they're dealing with their own stuff as you said but now they've got to put the pieces back together with the child and then the child starts to act like the, the narcissist and you're like 
I'm trying everything I can. I'm juggling 85 balls. What's the harm that the narcissists do with their kind of parenting and, and how does this help? So I would say that just like I just described what a protective parent is, right? I think it's important to understand, of course, abuse is a choice, but that the harmful parent, the narcissist who coercively controls, frankly, that's what he's trying to do is exert power and control over other people. And that's what coercive control really is about and strip away people's autonomy, right? That that person grew up in a family system where he didn't get that. He didn't get unconditional love. He wasn't actually allowed to be authentically himself. And so, of course, as you know, he was shamed over and over again for being who he really wanted to be or could be or, of course, aspired to be. And so he learned to cover that up, which is so harmful for a child. And so, um, you know, I'll just go a little bit off tangentially and, and just suggest like like imagine like your child, your child comes home and they say, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm not listening to you. And they just came from an abusive parent's home. And this is. But this is the behavior they're learning or role modeling, or they are so traumatized that they're projecting their anger onto you, right? Mm -hmm. So so when we say, how dare you talk to me? That's disrespectful. We don't, we are trying to provide structure and give our child guidance, but what we're really doing is shaming them. Mm. And so if the narcissist, if that coercive controller's role, so you go, going back to your first question, what, how do they parent? They love, love children who are ego compromised. Now, when I say that, what I mean is that is our healthy ego development, right? And, you know, the Harvard study, 80-year-old Harvard study that says that people are either born more ego compromised or more ego resilient. It's just the way we're made. I mean, there's a variety of things that could influence it. You know, obviously DNA, like our over, overall, our genetics, but also intergenerational trauma. Like think about that, right? Epigenetics, the whole like conversation that Bessel got us all talking about, right? So, so in any case, a child is born one way or the other, but then they're born into a family system. And in that family system, if they're born into a healthy family system that fosters healthy ego development and, um, and gives them unconditional love and allows them to be authentic, then that child's going to be a healthier human being. They're not going to, they're not going to grow up with all this shame. They're going to have confidence. They're going to feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. But just like that narcissist was born into probably born ego compromised, my hypothesis, born ego compromised, born into a family system that did not foster ego resiliency, did not mm -hmm. then created the monster that we all have had to deal with. That monster now has his own children. How does he parent? Same exact effing way, sorry. <laughs> Same way, he compromises. Because if I can compromise you, I can control you. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I can make you feel like you don't have agency in your life, because isn't that what all these abusers do is they diminish our agency. That's why we don't even know what's happening to us half the time, right? Even though, like, like I started the conversation, I've been doing this my whole entire life, teaching on domestic abuse and did not know I was married to someone who was doing this to me. So the reality is, is that if I can compromise my child, oh man, not only do I make them challenging for that protective parent, and, and I always say the goal of that abuser is to fracture the child's attachment to the one parent that can actually help them heal. If I can fracture that, oh man, oh man, I've got total 
controlled. And those are the children who end up getting entirely indoctrinated against the protective parent. Those are the children who literally end up all the maladaptive coping that they end up having, whether it's substance use, eating disorders, anxiety, OCD, all these things. I could go on, as you can tell, I should, I should. <laughs> You've got great passion. I love this. This is, this is really helpful because, uh, you know, when we get to the co-parenting discussion in, in the narcissist world, um, it's sort of like, just glue them back together. They'll be back next week. You can do it all over again. And it gets frustrating for them. And they can be giving all the love and being that one rock parent, but everything gets undone on Tuesday when they go back, right? It's 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 just a, a hamster wheel or groundhog day even, where it's just like you can put the pieces back together and then they just seemingly go back and get indoctrinated again. How does a parent cope with that? What's the difference between your model and the way I've just described it, which is what they, they keep just putting them back together. It's like Humpty Dumpty every Tuesday. So, um, what's the difference and how does this help can you give us some examples sure so i would say that you are playing a game of chess mm-hmm. or you are you're literally in a battle it's a battle it's a war and your child every time they come home they're coming home from a battle and they're a soldier we have to think of them as soldiers of that abusive parent that's their role is to be a soldier and so how do you i mean you know you could, we could use extreme examples but how do you uncult a child (laughs) how do you uncult them when you have them only two days a week or four days a week or you know in some horrible cases one I have one mom who sees her child her children one hour every other week at a diner he kidnapped the children legally like he just didn't ask the court for permission and just took them to a different state got away with it and now she sees her children for an hour every other week but the strategy is this she has to show up every single week, not as the broken mother she is. And by the way, she has a right to be a broken mother, right? So she has to show up in a position of personal power. And, and, and here's, it's so important that we let go of the negative. So say last week they said goodbye and one child wouldn't give her a hug or, or one child said, F you. I had, I was on the phone this morning with a mom and the kid said F off to the mother at 7am Pacific time. And it's just like, off your shoulders. Now, does that mean you don't address the swearing at some point? Maybe you do. But what we really have to be able to do is to let, like you you choose your battles and you choose like literally you let nine out of 10 things go. And every time they come home, they have to see you in that same consistent modeling of calm. You have to to co-regulate with them. You have to show them calm. They don't have anyone showing them calm. And so when they, when they walk in the door and they're abusive and let's call it what it is, it's abusive behavior. When they are abusive, do you like, listen, you know, do we want to cry and say, how dare you call me that? Or how dare you say that to me? Or do we want to literally start sobbing and saying, I can't believe this is my child and be devastated. Even if it's in the bedroom, or do we say, Hey, uh, not cool. Don't call me that name, please. And we go on and make dinner. Like literally they have to see us. Now you might be very traumatized in that incident. And and so what we know, which is so remarkable, what we know about the brain is that the brain is tricking us a lot of the time into believing certain things. 
the brain in that moment maybe wants that mother to feel like, oh my God, you should be really traumatized. You should be protecting yourself. The brain wants us to feel safe. But what we have to do is trick the brain into believing we are safe. Mm-hmm. And the more that we trick our brain into believing we are safe, the more that our brain gets off the hamster wheel to your, the word you used before. The brain is in a hamster wheel. So every time your child triggers you and walks through the door, you're going to have pretty similar reactions every time. I'm suggesting we learn responses. And, and so how do we do that? I mean, that's it's no easy feat. Going back to, you know, like I always say that the abuser is working double time. The protective parent has to work triple time. This is your effing full-time job. This has to be all you are thinking about virtually all the time, except for engaging in self-care. And I I use the CIA. I say we have to be creative. We have to be intentional. That means you have to think about when they come home tomorrow, what are the three things I'm going to do differently so that when they show up and they say X, Y, and Z, I know how to respond differently. And we have to be authentically attuned to them. We have to like, instead of them coming in the door and saying, hey, how was dinner with dad? Because like, I remember doing that. So I'll give you an example. I remember saying, how was dinner with dad? Trying to be nice about the fact that he's got another woman in my home that I'm not living in. I mean, oh my God, right? Like, and she's coming home from having dinner with him. I'm like super triggered, but how do I, oh, I'm going to be nice. You know, how was dinner with dad? Well, any mention, I figured out any mention of dad would trigger her. Mm -hmm. So why am I asking that? And by the way, That's the other thing. Why am I being so nice all the time? I mean, that, that's how she expects me to be is always like, oh, how was dinner with dad? You know, like versus like, like being more from a place. See, you have to understand if we're most victims and survivors, and I know you know, this are empathic and kind and giving, right? Well, that's the thing that scares our kids because that's weakness. That's how he abused us. Mm -hmm. So what happens when they come home and they say F off and you say back, you know what, you could F off too. Like with a little snarky attitude. Mm -hmm. Do they expect that? Like now, you know, I mean, tell everyone to, you know, like these are like some things that you all know your children better than anyone. That's what I always say. I don't know. I don't know your child. I know for my child, I never swore a day in my life until I was like, 48 years old and realizing I was leaving a horrible relationship. But then I had children who were swearing at me and I started swearing back. And that was like a huge, like, huh? Wow. Mm -hmm. It was a shift. How do we show up differently than they expect us to? What would happen if your children came home and you didn't ask how dinner was with dad? Cause you asked that all the time. What if you actually were creative and more intentional about and attuned to them? authentically attuned to them and you ask them something when and if they were ready and maybe it had nothing to do with dad and they were like phew I don't have to answer that question Mm -hmm. yeah everything you're saying is it makes perfect sense and I just questioned the be calm change the, the way you react with them but is that giving the kids again you're weak 
that's why you got abused. I'm strong and I'm not going to get that way. Mom, you're the loser. Stop being so nice. I mean, I see again, depending on the age of the children and their reactions and them swearing at you. And, you know, uh, I'm hoping they were older when they started to swear at you, but we've had five-year-olds swearing at their parents because they've heard it. Um, I had a client a few weeks ago that her child was in school and threatened and told someone they were going to kill them. And that's because they'd heard it so much at home, right? And so there's so many situations that come up that are like this. And so it's sort of like, what's the calm versus the I get to swear back at you? Or is that just being creative? And you're, the swearing is not swearing at you. It's it's sort of like, again, it's like, you're a blankety blank. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about taking theirs and almost making fun of it. Well, I think it's like, it comes, it's not, we don't want to, so the important thing is not to shame them. Right. So, you know, what are our alternatives? We could say, don't call me that. How dare you call me that? My mother would never, I would never talk that way to my mother. Right. Okay. You're so disrespectful. Where did you learn that? Those are all shaming. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do we stay away from shaming? And could we just be a little snarky? Like, oh, really? Or like, like, how about this one? So your child calls you a bitch and you're like, hmm, I don't agree, but okay. Like, it's just like nothing. It's so important. Nothing is personal. Right. They are literally just soldiers doing the dirty work of someone. And what happens is just like with soldiers, they may not be a hundred percent invested in the false narrative, the gaslighting, Mm -hmm. but some of them may be more invested. How do you show them that whatever they've been hearing about you isn't true? Now, maybe, you know, maybe you've been, they've heard you can't take a joke. Mm -hmm. Then maybe when they call you a name, you kind of, you laugh, you're like, oh, that's funny. Ha ha ha. Like you show them that you have a better sense of humor than they've ever been told. Now, again, you, you're faking it because you are so overwhelmed and flooded by it. You're faking it. But again, your brain actually will change if you fake it. I I call it fake it till you make it. Like you kind of have to, we have to actually process things differently and and train our brain differently. Our brain is not always our friend. That's like a real, like a real, that's a real story there. The brain is not always our friend. (laughs) Drugs sometimes. Yeah. 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 Uh, Oh, this is so powerful. Um, So what have we missed? Um, How do we prevent this from happening so I always say that the moms who have the older so first of all it's really important to understand that if your child is not aligned with that abuser right now and you're like elated this is your little child who gets it that may not remain the same long term we have to always be thinking that that abuser is consistently trying to erode away compromise our child's ego so just because you have a child who gets it today I had a mom um her son was physically abused child welfare was engaged begged her to leave the father and she left and then now he's spending time with the father and now he's basically being outrageous with her So he's almost completely forgotten. And frankly, how is that different than an adult victim who goes back? We say on average, it takes seven attempts to leave an abusive relationship, right? So like the thing about this coercion and control is that protective parents have to understand their children are experiencing the same thing they did. 
same abuse. And so, you know, it's really unfortunate that it's an unacknowledged child abuse. It's not seen as problematic. Um, you know, we could talk about, you know, the family court literally denies that it's a problem and gives abusers, even if there's evidence, 50-50 time. Whatever time protective parents have with their children is invaluable. And you have to use that time as if it's invaluable. Like you, you cannot, excuse me, you have to use that time as if it's the most valuable thing. I was thinking about this mom who sees her kids one hour a week, every other week. And, you know, I coached her and worked with her and the lunches are nicer. They're just nicer. And, and if you can create a space where there's calm, where children feel safe with you, where you're not breaking down when you have to say goodbye, even though you can be sad, but they don't see you as broken, then they can lean on you. But if you are broken, and, and this goes like for, I think about the parents who have no contact with their children, because you know that's all too frequent, right? And I always say, I use the, um, I talk about grief and loss in my program because this is a disenfranchised grief, meaning that society doesn't even acknowledge it as a real loss, right? You try to tell someone you haven't talked to your child in two years, or you haven't seen your child in a month, or um, your child's always angry, or um, not like, like you, it's dysfunction, right? And you try to tell them that people are like, oh, it can't be that bad. Or they're a teenager or, oh, he can't be that bad if he's the abuser, right? I know that, of course, women can be abusers too. Um, but just that how important it is that we grow around our grief. Because if we don't grow around our grief, why would a child come back to us? That makes sense. And again, I've seen so many traumatized parents that it almost feels like because they're in such trauma, their responses are coming from that place. And if the kids are older, they're responding from that. And it, it pushes them towards the narcissist because you're so unstable that it's, it's the prophecy coming true. The narcissist has been telling them this and here you are, you're not being the rock. You're being the, you know, just breaking out every single time you see them. And, and it's, it's scary, but when you think about the narcissist and, and say a division of children and one child becomes the golden and one becomes the scapegoat. And then now you get this package coming home where one you might be able to reach and talk to and change. And the other one is still so resistant and the F-bombs are coming and the, the scary threats are coming. How do we put the people, the kids back together if they're in those roles? Is there a place for this in that? scenario? I think so. I think we have to, again, CIA, like work really diligently and fought. So we have to understand, of course, that this, this abuser is constantly trying to split, right? He's using a lot of split. Things are good or bad. Everything's black and white. And so he has probably said horrible things about one sibling to the other sibling and vice versa, right? Triangulation, right? But in that, we have again if we can think about i always say what has what has what has gone on in that home while your child's not been with you mm -hmm. what do you think are the things the abuser has said about you or said about the child what are the what are the narratives that are going on in your child's brain 
And then if we can really support as much as possible, foster a positive relationship between those two siblings, I say like, you know, go off to the local coffee shop with them, get coffee, and then tell them you have to take a call and leave them at the table alone like depending on their age, but leave them at the table alone. Give them as many opportunities to, so this is about attachment again, right? Like we have to reignite. So every time they leave, he's fracturing the attachment. Fracture, 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 right? And every time they come home, we have to reignite. (laughs) So we like are, you know, putting those, that kindling together, trying really hard to reignite the attachment. Then they go back, he fractures. They come home, we reignite. I mean, that is the process. And we have to do that with the kids. We have to help the kids with that because who's going to help? They don't know enough to do that. We have to do that. So what can you do? Can you buy a game that they both like if you have younger children and, or go shopping with one child for the other child as a gift, and then go shopping with the other child and give them a gift. So I always say like, think about how your children like to receive love, you know, Um, and you know, what can we do? Can we, how can we foster their, their friendship? Really? Their friendship. Because he's trying to hurt him. If the, if it be the ideal situation would be if you foster this relationship within the kids instead of letting it become fractured, then the golden would stand up for the scapegoat. They would be like, "No, don't do that. That's my sister." And and really, you know, I I grew up with two sisters and narc parents, and we were just completely you know triangulated. We were never, I never remember, I've never traveled with them. I've never played a board game with them. We didn't play in the yard. We had separate TV rooms so that we wouldn't fight. Like it was so divided that, you know, it, no wonder we are, and they're, they're dead now, but where we are in this, in this scenario is that we had no one and nobody was putting the, there wasn't even separation, there, but nobody was putting together the family unit. So what you're talking about, I think, is so powerful that people really need to learn that from this video is, again, you're the glue and you're the putter backer together. And it is it is also building that sibling relationship. I'm so glad we hit this because that makes both of them stronger, right? And I love the idea of the, oops, got to go. I got a phone call. You guys have your coffee. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can only pull that once or twice, but it would certainly. um, It's little things like that, right? I I feel like, like, even when they come home, if you are normally, you're anxious, they're coming home. What can you do before they come home to prepare yourself? mm -hmm. How do you take care of you so that you are more regulated? Because when they come in the door, they know you're dysregulated. How do you create the space that the home is calm? You're regulated. And so I say to moms, like, so if you're normally like at the door and you're like, hi, honey, how was your time? Or let me take your backpack. What would happen if you were just laying on the couch reading a book? Mm-hmm. Like with the pressure, I have one mom who her son, um, every time he comes home from dad's, he doesn't say a word to her. He goes upstairs and takes a shower. That's how he decompresses. And in that, when he comes down from the shower, it's dinner time. They have dinner together. She never brings up her visit. She allows him to bring it up. So like, it's just those lit, it's so tiny. It's so nuanced, but it can make such a big difference. For example, most of these abusers will do anything to alienate the children also from other loved ones. Right. Right. So if you have little ones, man, you had better 
this is like my best, like you had better be getting those people, your protective parts engaged in your child's life as much as possible now, because once they reach adolescence, a lot of adolescents in general don't want to like, they're just not as readily willing to engage. Right. But if they have a strong attachment to an uncle or an aunt or your parents Mm -hmm. or cousins now, that will save you in the hardest times. Mm-hmm. But you but you can't say now, oh, I don't have time or I I don't really like my sister because of X, Y, and Z. If, is your sister relatively healthy? I mean, <laughs> if she's relatively healthy, then bring her in to the fold. We have to bring as many people into the fold. If it's a coach on a team, um, you know, I mean, the neighbor's dog. It's as simple as that. Can you hire, this is, I mean, animal therapy, of course, um, always, always works. Uh, so can you hire the neighbor? If you have, if, if, if the neighbor doesn't need a walker, can you tell the neighbor that you will barter with the neighbor for something, or you will hire, you will give the neighbor money to give your child money so that your child walks the dog every day? Like that is something that's a positive part in the child's life. They don't have positive parts in that other family, in that other home. Yeah. Nothing's positive over there. Well, it, it could be Disneyland. Um, well, be, you know, it's not legit. It's not, right. It's not legit. <laughs> they don't understand it. And, and again, that's another thing we have to put the pieces back together. You know, at that house, you might have a 65 inch TV in your room, but at our house, we're going to sit together on the couch and, and watch a movie together. And again, it's putting those memories. I always tell people it's, it's, you know, the best way to co-parent is to make memories for your child and be unforgettable. If you don't want to be forgotten, be, do things that they remember that mm-hmm. are part of the fabric of their childhood. Because again, like if you're always stressed when they come home and you're just like, Whoa, you know, and you're always like anxious, you're not thinking about let's play Monopoly or let's do this. Or what's your favorite thing? How about we go throw a ball and we'll both get it out of our system. You know, if you create those memories, then it's a lot harder wall to penetrate when they go back to the other parent's house, they can remember and going, wow, we had so much fun there. That was great. I want to go back. Right. So it, it's a lot of parents back away when they have this kind of reaction with the kids and they're just like, oh, oh they're just like the narcissist. Oh my God. And they freeze. And then that gives permission to the narcissist to just go ahead, take them without the fight to say, not my children. We're going to go play baseball. We're going to go to the gym. We're going to do something that they go, when I'm with mom, it's so much fun. We go to the gym and then we have an ice cream and, and it's so much fun, right? So whatever it is, it's building those memories. And of and I love that they're of the calm mom or the calm dad, because that anxiety does steal away and feed the narrative that the narcissist is telling them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's important to like, there is a research study that talks about this idea that, I don't know if you've heard it, but the brain is like a dry sponge. Mm -hmm. And when we take an antidepressant or medication, Mm -hmm. we actually moisten up the brain. So the brain is healthier. Okay. This is just like an analogy, right? And so when you take away the medication, what happens? The brain gets dry again. But what research shows us is a way to combat that is with positive memories. Mm -hmm. So the more positive memories that we're inserting in the brain bank, 
the healthier overall we're going to be. So a child who is going through this, no doubt in my mind, is suffering complex post-traumatic stress. There is depression. There is anxiety. Oftentimes, these are misdiagnosed as ADHD or um, obsessive compulsive disorder. I have some children who are so oppositional defined, they're getting diagnosed with ODD. What do they really have? They have a lack of real, true, positive memories in their memory bank that they can go back to. So I would even say, like, you know, take out a photo book of when they were a baby and you holding them in their arms or be in the kitchen watching a video, a family video, and they come in and they're like, what are you doing? Oh, look at how cute you were. All we're doing is we have to actually reignite the memory. We have to, he, that abuser, he, she is suppressing all positive memories. That's how they create ego compromise, right? How they erase you. That's what families feel like. I've been erased. They don't remember I was the best mom and we were so close, right? That's the biggest complaint people have is this erasure. So I love that idea of, of, you know, creating memories and, and, and opening up a, a family album. My son is older and he he wants to see his baby pictures now for the first time in 29 years. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to detain him to you. I want to explain to you what was happening in them because I think that's much more, again, a memory. Well, I remember when mom told me about this. I forgot about that Halloween. Oh, that's so special because mom told me. So it is about those sort of things. It's It's powerful. And I think it will change the course of how people are. So I'm so thankful for you for talking to us about this today. I haven't had this topic before, and I'm so happy that you're sharing it with us. Thank you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Really, it's so important. I, I think there's, I think protective parents have so much influence. They just don't realize it. They feel trapped, but they do. They have so much influence. So I'm grateful to be here. Can you tell all my audience how they can find you? Sure. So they can, I have a website, um, I know your heart.com because I think protective parents know their children's hearts better than anyone. It's also course of control consulting. I have a protective parenting program that launches in January. Um, it's really, it's eight weeks or four weeks depending, or you can do self-study, but it's really a comprehensive, like it's all of this and more. Um, I have a work, I have workbooks and videos, 12 hours of video lessons that people listen to on their headset over and over again. And um, I've been told by so many protective moms that it truly has um, a game changer is words that people use, um, no matter what the age of their children. So I'm grateful to be able to offer it. And um, I love teaching and educating. So for me, I feel like that's where the shift happens, just like with what you're doing. The more that we talk about it, the more people hopefully we can help and prevent the intergenerational trauma, right? These children who who are coming home behaving so harmful, what if we could prevent them from becoming more like that parent? Oh my God, like that's amazing, I feel we're, like. We've been breaking the cycle. That's what we have to remember here. That's the key here is if we, you know, just break the cycle and don't give that the food that it needs to grow. And so- Thank you so much, Christine. It has been a pleasure having you and I will have you back soon. Thank you, Tracy. 
so many good things that she just taught you guys. I hope that you can take away a little kibble to keep yourself calm, to change the way you react. I know, and I didn't say it on the video, but I totally know that I made these mistakes as well. You know, what'd you do at your dad's? How are you? Blah, blah, blah. And again, we don't want to trigger them. We need to learn how to parent different. So I hope this helps you guys. And if you like this video, please subscribe. And if you do, also give that little check mark. I'm supposed to say that stuff and get you to subscribe and build my audience and come back when I have another video. Uh, if you are looking for help about a narcissist, doesn't matter if it's a co-parenting situation, I have a website, NarcissistAbuseSupport.com, and we have thousands of, of resources for you, places, books, everything you could possibly need to build and learn how to heal, what books you should read, what you do, go find my website. I think you'll find lots of good stuff. And that's it for now. I'll see you again soon. Thank you.